Father, Thou art holy, righteous, transcendent, and other. But we are vile, wretched, miserable, and blind. Regarding our sins, our lips are ready to confess, but our hearts are slow to admit. Unmask our sin and grant us the gift of, for, of repentance. We bring our souls to you. Break them. Wound them. Bend them. Mold them. And then apply the gospel balm to them. May we leave saying, we have met with you in the book. God our Father, make the words of the book sweet to us, even if they correct us. Holy Spirit, our teacher, come and shine upon the printed page. Jesus, our Savior, you came down to raise us up. You were born like us, that we might become like you. Our sins are drowning in the ocean of your mercy. Holy Trinity, three in one and one in three. Our souls we lift, our wills we bow to you, our triune God who reigns. Amen. Last week, we left John on Alcatraz. <laughs> He's an 80-year-old man exiled to this penal settlement for preaching the gospel. On this small rocky island, he's under the watchful eye and ready whip of Roman guards. He's treated like all the other criminals. Early mornings and late nights in the rock quarry and then fend for yourself to find a place to sleep. Tradition tells us he slept in a cave. John thought he would die on that first century Alcatraz until he received a vision. A vision of the resurrected Christ. In it, Jesus wearing priestly garments, walking among seven lampstands. In the last verse of chapter 1, it revealed to us that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches to which Christ wants John to write a letter. John will make it off the island of Patmos because Jesus wants these letters delivered to his churches. Tradition tells us a beautiful story of John being released and then taking a short boat ride over to the mainland to visit these churches. He's too feeble to stand, so he's carried in a chair from church to church. In our text, we are continuing from last week, a heavenly tabernacle scene. In the tabernacle, you may remember in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle in the holy place was a seven-branched golden lampstand. The priest would keep the candles going 24-7. Trimming wicks, carving wax, breathing life back into the flickering flame. What is happening in John's vision? The terribly majestic risen Christ is walking among his churches, 
trimming wicks and carving wax, breathing life back into the flickering flames. He's making sure the candles don't go out. He keeps his churches burning. We see Christ walking among his churches. Walking. Present tense. He's always walking among his churches. He patrols the ground. Jesus is not distant from his churches. He knows what's happening in his churches. He's not an absentee ruler. No disinterested deity. Jesus says, John, pick up your pen. I want, to dictate, I want you to dictate some letters for me. The first one, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars, where are they? In his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. <laughs> Imagine John's surprise when the first church addressed is the one he used to pastor. Paul, another first century follower of Christ, started the church at Ephesus on his third missionary journey 30 years ago. He spent two years founding it. When he left, the church was led by Timothy. Priscilla and Aquila, that theologically stout couple, were members of this church. The church at Ephesus was the mother church in the region. It gave birth to many churches. The church of Colossae, the church of Hierapolis. They were a church planting church. Their legacy was unrivaled. Great heritage. This is one of the churches in the New Testament which two letters are directly addressed. Ephesians and Revelation. When Paul wrote Timothy two volumes, Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus. Sometime later, John came to minister in this church. He became one of the elders of that local assembly. The church was under his care. It was while pastoring in Ephesus that he wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the gospel according to John. Now, I don't, I don't know if you're keeping count, but at the very least, there are eight letters in your Bible either addressed to this church or to a pastor in this church or written from a pastor of this church. It was while pastoring here that John was imprisoned for preaching the gospel and sent to the island of Patmos. How long between his arrest in Ephesus and receiving this vision commanding him to write a letter to his home church? I'm not sure, but likely less than a year. The city of Ephesus was unique. It had changed quite a bit from 30 years ago when Paul started a, a church in it. In its heyday, it had 250,000 people. It used to be an extremely important and influential city, but its significance is waning. It was a, a major commercial center, the port center for Asia Minor. The great highways of the seas converged at this city. But the Castor River kept depositing silt at the mouth of the harbor, and despite their efforts to remove it, it eventually shut down the harbor. Ephesus was beginning to look like an old West Virginia coal mining town. It once hustled and bustled, but it's in decline. With a silted up harbor, it's now a dying city. 
church, here's how we're going to break down this letter to the church at Ephesus. Three movements. Movement number one, Jesus showing the church at Ephesus where they're nailing it. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 and verse 6. Movement two, Jesus showing the church at Ephesus where they're missing it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Movement three, Jesus giving the church at Ephesus an ultimatum. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5 and 7. Jesus showing the church at Ephesus where they're nailing it. Jesus showing the church at Ephesus where they're missing it. Jesus giving the church at Ephesus an ultimatum. We will walk through these three movements and then go home with four applications. Let's begin with Jesus showing the church at Ephesus where they're nailing it. Let's read once again verse 1. To the angel. Who's it addressed to? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Each of the seven letters are addressed to the angel of that local church. You may recall last week that I left you hanging on who the angels were. The letter is addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Who are the angels? Well, there are three possible views. Option one, angelic beings. Option two, senior pastors. Option three, it was a symbol of the church itself. Let's look at option one, angelic beings. Some believe each church had an angel assigned to it, like a guardian angel. Some scholars that hold to this, Kent Hughes, Tony Morita, D.A. Carson, Origen, Craig Kester, Daniel Aiken, Tom Schreiner. Now there is a weakness with this position, and that's that Angels are sinless. Why would Jesus write a letter to an angel? The church is the one who is nailing it or missing it, not the angel. Option two, senior pastors. The Greek word for angel can mean messenger. Who is the messenger of the church at Ephesus? Well, the senior pastor. Scholars that hold to this is is H.B. Uh, Charles. He leans that way, but is not dogmatic. And John MacArthur is always dogmatic in his stances. Um, but, but there is a weakness with this as well. Angels are mentioned about 70 times in Revelation, which accounts for 25% of their mentions in the entire Bible. And all those mentions, not one time does it ever refer to a human being. Plus, New Testament churches, we know this from studying the Bible, they had a plurality of elders, not one senior pastor. There wasn't a pastor with the biggest belt buckle, the head honcho. Have you, have you ever heard of churches refer to their pastor like this, the angel of the house? You ever heard of that? Don't ever call me that. <laughs> Option three. It was the angels were a symbol of the church itself. This view holds that the angels were a way of personifying the prevailing spirit of the church, the church itself. Scholars that hold to this, Mounts, uh, Herschel York, Goldsworthy leans that way, Ocumenius. So we know from the last verse of chapter 1 that the angels are the seven stars. The angels are the seven stars. Whatever the angels are, the seven stars are. They are the same thing. Jesus says in Revelation 1.20, and I quote, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. So let's just put all that together. If, if that's the case with option one, Jesus is writing 
to an actual angel and he holds that angel in his hand. I don't know. Option two, Jesus is writing to senior pastors and he holds senior pastors in his hand. You other loser pastors, I mean, just whatever. <laughs> Option three, Jesus is writing to the churches and he holds the churches in his hand. Now, I'm usually with the crew that's in option one. But on this, I'm with option three. Jesus is holding the churches. They are his. His right hand speaks of favor, protection, and ownership. The churches are in his authority, under his protection. This is symbolic apocalyptic literature. Look at verse two. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Jesus is giving a really long list of things to be commended. I know your works and your toil. The word toil describes a group of people working to exhaustion. People in the church at Ephesus were like the World War II generation. Life is hard, but they press on. Week after week, they are putting in hours and hours for the local church. They give strenuous and exhausting labor. Jesus says, I know you're pouring yourself out. I know you're running ragged. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and, and you have not grown weary. Their endurance is remarkable. They are under a heavy load, but they don't grow weary. The city is dying, but they keep working. The pastor is arrested, but they keep preaching. You know the economic downturn of the city affected the church. Churches tend to take on the city. What describes the city describes the church. People are leaving the city moving away, and people are leaving the church moving away. But in all the moves, they don't grow weary. Imagine if Fort Campbell shut down. That harbor silted up. You think it would affect our church? Absolutely. Just drive through Detroit and see how it bustled with people and car factories. And now it's dilapidated building after dilapidated building. Same with church buildings. Massive auditoriums there now filled with few people. It's not because the church is dying. It's because the city died. Motor City became ghost town. You had to think the same thing was happening with this church. But they never grew weary. Notice verse 2, the second half. Verse 2b. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false this church is praised for not being able to stomach evil. They weed out the religious pretenders. Apparently some were coming into the church and wanting to teach. Uh, this church had an alertness to doctrinal error. They are praised for their excellent orthodoxy. They are critical thinkers. They line everything up with the word of God. They possess the spiritual maturity to identify heretical teaching. They tested doctrine. They would only accept good theology. What a testimony. 30 years after their founding, 
they are still holding on to sound doctrine. Don't bring that counterfeit theology into our church, into our seminars, into our small groups, into our Sunday services. Just because people come in talking about Jesus doesn't mean they get the pulpit or the teaching spots or the influence. We don't know the name of this particular false teacher, but we know it was more than one. Satan sends false teachers to infiltrate the church. This congregation listened for the soundness of his content so they were unable to be seduced by the smoothness of his style. False teachers were unable to harm the church at Ephesus. You know why? Because their leaders labored to teach them healthy doctrine, good theology, sound teaching. John had to be smiling as he dictated these words. This is his home church. He labored to teach them solid theology. He wore himself out to ground them in the faith and bring them to maturity in Christ. John smiles. Oh, he knows those false teachers. He knows he ran some of those bozos off. By the way, it's not always men bringing in false teaching to the church. Sometimes it's ladies. Outside of Romans, Paul wrote the most theological letter to the church at Ephesus. Why? Because they could eat meat. They had a steady diet of the word of God week after week. They were heady. They possessed the ability to work through complex theological issues. You, you remember uh, one of the couples in that church, Priscilla and Aquila? They were well versed in the word. You could say they were heady. Verse 6. Yet this you have. In other words, you have this to your credit. You have this to your credit. You hate the work, works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Notice Jesus did not say he hated the teachings of the Nicolaitans. At least not yet. He's not talking about their doctrine right now. He's speaking about their morality. Who are the Nicolaitans? They were a group who exaggerated Christian liberties. They were people who were known for immorality and yet still claiming to be Christians. Still wanting to be members of the church. Let me be blunt. They were jumping from bed to bed and still putting Jesus quotes up on social media. We don't know a ton about this group, but Victorinus of Ptah, the first guy to write a commentary on Revelation in AD 280, he said the Nicolaitans were known for fornication. Clement of Alexandria, a church father living 75 years after this letter was delivered to Ephesus, said, and I quote, the Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading lives of self-indulgence. They introduced a new and improved modernized version of Christianity that allowed you to live however you pleased and still be able to claim the name of Christ. The church at Ephesus hated, strong word, their works, their immoral lifestyle, their hypocrisy. And the church isn't the only ones. God hates it too. God hates. Let that sink in. 
He hates when you claim Christ but live like a pleasure-seeking goat. You know what the church at Ephesus did? Church discipline. They wouldn't let this seep into the church. You, you are claiming Christ but living promiscuously? You claim to be an apple tree but we see no apples? You are removed from us. You are not of us. See this, FFC. The church at Ephesus did church discipline on people because of bad theology and bad morals. They took steps to remove them if their belief wasn't in step with Christ or their behavior wasn't in step with Christ. If they had a faulty creed or a faulty conduct, they were called out and removed. Now, those of you here this morning that are non-Christians, it's quite a few of you. Those of you here that are non-Christians, this is why you've lost respect for the church. Because they no longer do this. You see no real difference from people in the church and the way you live. The church at Ephesus expelled heresy peddling wolves and pleasure seeking goats. The church, of course, gave them opportunity to repent and be restored to fellowship. But obviously, these two groups refused to repent. The only sin that's ever church discipline at that church was the unrepentant sin. There are two ways that will eventually prove if you're not a genuine Christian. By works or by doctrine. What is happening in these opening verses? <laughs> what is happening in these opening verses? Jesus is praising a local church. What is he praising a local church for? He's commending them for being intolerant. Now, that's not often what churches are praised for, is it? Even among genuine Christians. This church was commended for their intolerance of false teaching and their intolerance of immorality. Do you commend churches for the same? When is the last time you've said, I'm glad that church practices church discipline? I'm glad they remove people from membership who claim to be Christians but show absolutely no fruit of being a true Christian. I'm glad the elders don't ignore sexual sin. I'm glad they are getting a bad rep in town because they are intolerant toward false teaching. You need to start commending churches for the things Jesus commends churches for. These are not things to apologize about. These are things to give thanks for. Oh, oh, your, your church teaches verse by verse, week after week, through entire books of the Bible. Don't you, don't you think that's a little heady? No. A church should te teach the deep things of God. And they should overshoot my head from time to time. Yeah, 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 yeah but, but they are a little extreme on disciplining, right? I mean, I mean, it's the age of sowing your wild oats. Can't they just look over it? No, I'm... I'm glad the church doesn't allow people to lie to themselves, claiming to be Christians, but they love the act of sex more than the commands of God. It's politically incorrect for Jesus to commend the church at Ephesus for what he commended them for. <laughs> this may be surprising to you, but Jesus isn't PC. He says, church at Ephesus, you're doing a good job of keeping the world out of the church, 
not allowing a blemish to be on my name. First, Jesus showing the church at Ephesus where they're nailing it. Secondly, Jesus showing, showing the church at Ephesus where they're missing it. From my count, the church at Ephesus is doing nine things well and one thing wrong. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Let's stop here and praise God for this truth. Jesus is honest with his churches. And we should be too. There is a holy jealousy that Jesus is demonstrating in verse 4. He's jealous for his church. I've got nine, but I want ten. I've got your head, but I also want your heart. Some say of this church, they've lost their first love. It's poetic, but not the intent of the Greek. The church did not lose their first love. Oh no, where did it, where did it go? No, they left their first love. It was deliberate. Just as the harbor of the city silted up, so their hearts silted up. They had a strong mind and busy hands, but a shriveled heart. Your doctrine can be hot all the while, while your heart is cold. It's possible to be busy for God without enjoying time with God. Now, what was their first love? High school sweetheart? Is that what it was? No. What, what was their first love? Some pastors say they lost their love for God. Others say, no, they lost their love for other Christians. But the love of God and the love of neighbor are two inseparable concepts. This 80-year-old man with shaking hands who is dictating this letter knew that. He, he had taught the church at Ephesus this. He wrote these words while pastoring in Ephesus. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who, who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, 20 and 21. John was surprised Jesus wanted him to dictate a letter to his home church, but he was not surprised Jesus wanted to address the issue of love. The church used to be loving. I know that. I know that because 23 to 27 years ago, Paul wrote Ephesians to them and said, I hear of your love for all the saints. In the beginning, they were known for being a loving church. Now, they are a loveless church. Some theologians say they lost their love for God. Other theologians say they lost their love for other Christians. Still, other theologians say they lost their love for the lost. Evangelizing. Commentators really speak over one another in arguing which one it is, but I think it's a mix of all three. Herschel York and G.K. Bill feel strongly it's the third option. In fact, Bill says, losing the first love is tantamount to becoming unzealous witnesses in the world. Jesus showing the church at Ephesus where they're nailing it. That was movement one. Jesus showing the church at Ephesus where they're missing it. That's movement two. Now movement three. Jesus giving the church at Ephesus an ultimatum. 
Thank God this letter doesn't end in verse 4. <laughs> Praise God for that. How do you regain your first love? Jesus not only diagnoses the illness, but he gives the remedy. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Let's stop there. Now, I'm going to do the most old school preacher thing ever. I'm going to give you three R's. Those old school preachers loved alliteration. You may notice I never used alliteration. It sometimes draws attention away from the text and gets the eyes on the pre preacher's creative abilities. But I just couldn't ignore it here. Two of the R's are just so clearly in the English text. How do you regain your first love? Remember, repent, resume. Did that alliteration change your life? See, they always disappoint. Number one, remember. What does the text say? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Do you have any idea how far you've fallen? It's a Lucifer fall. There used to be a height about your walk with Christ, but it's not there anymore. You're down here. Go back before you knew Habakkuk was a book of the Bible and, and not a fish. Remember when the cross meant everything to you. When Jesus was so sweet and precious to you. You lived on cloud nine because of this reality. Your sins are forgiven. Nothing could discourage you. Nothing could knock you down. Stop. Stop with your cold mechanical heart. Remember when love was reckless. When there was tenderness and fervency. Times when you had such a delight in reading the word of God, serving the local church. Your private prayer life was your lifeline. Take an inventory of where you were and where you are now. You may be doctrinally stronger than you've ever been, but you've lost the fire. They say, Kyle, I, I haven't abandoned my love. I haven't, I haven't fallen. Has there ever been a time when you were more excited about attending corporate worship than you are now? Has there ever been a time when you were more quick to open the word of God each day? Has there ever been a time when you had a stronger prayer life than you do now? Ever a day when you spoke of Christ to non-Christians more often than you do now? Are you indifferent toward the lost? You really look for an excuse to miss corporate gatherings now. You used to never miss. There's no other way to describe that than a fall. You say, I haven't changed my beliefs at all. I didn't ask that. Do you want to go back to the time when you loved walking with God? When it was a thrill to share the gospel with a non-Christian? Do you have that longing in you? One, remember. Two, repent. I love this command. Jesus commands the church corporately and the individuals individually, the members individually to repent. What an encouragement. If you have sinned, you can still be reconciled. To repent is to stop going your way and start going God's way. You can come back. Just because you're not doing drugs or looking at pornography doesn't mean you don't need to repent. Everything can look good on the outside, but you still desperately need to repent. 
the church at Ephesus, they still carried their big Bibles to worship. They had seminary profs teaching Sunday school classes. Their kids re recite the New City Catechism. They knew the Jesus Storybook Bible by memory. They know the Reformers. They even have Sola Scriptura on the pulpit. Little kids running around the church at Ephesus named Spurgeon and Luther and MacArthur. It's actually chronologically impossible, but you know what I'm saying. Their doctrine was hot, but their love had cooled. Beloved, repent. Lovelessness is sin. You're not labeling sin what God says is sin. It's not repent and then go back to God, but repentance is going back to God. Number one, remember. Number two, repent. And repentance must always be followed by action. So number three, resume. What does the text say? Do the works you did at first. Now that's something resuming. Jesus commended them for their works earlier. Same Greek word here. The, the works they were doing. But they must have also stopped doing some other works. They're not doing something they used to do. I don't know what it was. Because it was not meant for us to know what it, what it was. But you can't separate deeds from love. Well, it's, it's everyone else's problem why I'm not doing what I used to do. I lost my spot. The pastor changed. The church grew. She said this. No, no. It's not their problem. It's your problem. Beloved. Resume. You don't have a heart for giving like you used to? Start giving. Then your heart will follow. You don't have a heart for serving right now? Resume. You don't read the Bible the way you used to? Resume and your heart will catch up. God will bring you to a place where love and works kiss. May God rekindle the coals of your love for Christ and his church. Verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not. I will come to you. And remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. This may change your view of God. And if so. Good. This is a threat. You may not like that word, but it is what it is. Repent or else. The church at Ephesus is free to ignore this warning. Jesus will not force their obedience. He does not force your love. This is not a trivial problem. Jesus threatens to remove their lampstand. Church at Ephesus, you have two options. Reformation or removal. What does it mean when Jesus says to this local church, I will remove your lampstand? It means he will shut the church down. They will cease to exist. If you will not burn brightly for me, I will come and blow out what remains. Or, or it means the buildings may continue to stand, the machinery may continue to function, but no presence of God there. 
You may call yourself a church. You may go through the mechanics of a church, but you will no longer be a church. And this may be the worst thing that could happen. They keep meeting, but Jesus doesn't show up. They keep creating budgets and having potlucks, but no spirit and no power. How long would the average church continue operations before realizing Jesus doesn't show up anymore? Does that scare you, church? Does that awaken you? Every saved person has eternal security. Local churches do not. H.B. Charles pointed out that these three words from Jesus in verse 5, I will come. You've heard Jesus say those words before, but here in this verse, this is not a second coming. This is a special coming. But we don't want that special coming. Verse 7, he who has an ear. This is a biblical way of asking, are you listening? Do you have ears that hear? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, do not miss the fact that this revelation has now been attributed to God the Father in chapter 1, verse 1, God the Son, chapter 2, verse 1, and now God the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, verse 7, refer to all equally. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat. This is interesting. This is new for me. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus leaves this church with hope. If you remember, repent, and resume, you will eat of the tree of life. This harkens us back to the Garden of Eden. There were two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, the fabulous tree and the forbidden tree. Adam and Eve ate freely from the tree of life, but were commanded not to eat of the forbidden tree. They did anyway. Sin entered the bloodstream of humanity and they were expelled from the garden and expelled from the tree of life. Man has been cut off from that tree ever since. But there is coming a day when we shall eat of it again. The curse will be lifted. Paradise lost will be paradise regained. Church, I kind of, I kind of feel wrong for reading this. Because we're reading someone else's mail. But if the shoe fits, and it does, because God inspired it, it's someone else's mail, but it has your name on it. This is the first of seven letters to seven different churches. You need to know something about these letters. First, they are open letters. The other churches would find out the church at Ephesus was loveless. Even some of their children churches. Secondly, these are not anonymous letters. Jesus dictated them and signed his name. Three movements... Now, four applications. Three movements, now four applications. Application number one, FFC, it's not fun to go through evaluations, but every local church is evaluated by Jesus. You know what Jesus is doing in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3? He's evaluating his churches. I used to work for a dry cleaner. Did I ever tell you that? It, it was in college. It was the fifth largest dry cleaner in the world. The only four that were larger were in Cali. My boss used to do something at all the locations called mystery shoppers. He would pay people to come in, drop their clothes off, and evaluate the customer service. Every month we had a meeting, and he would read those mystery shoppers' evaluations of us. 
Were we friendly? Did we say the name twice? That was big for them. Did we say the name twice? Let me get that for you, Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones, would you like for me to put your suit in the back of your Lexus? Uh, Mrs. Smith, your dress will be ready Thursday at 4 p.m. Here's a reminder receipt. Would you like to receive a text message when it's ready? Uh, uh, Mrs. Smith, would you, would you please blow that smoke from your cigarette in my face one more time before you leave? I've been wanting to get throat cancer. I hated those monthly meetings. The, the two best employees received awards and, and the two lowest employees received the stink eye from the boss. Being evaluated isn't fun, but how are you going to respond to it? Herschel York, uh, in speaking about how to respond to evaluations, Herschel York is a, is a preaching prof at Southern Seminary in Louisville. He's actually from Western Kentucky. Uh, he, he evaluates young seminary students' sermons. And when asked what that's like, he said this, it's like being paid to tell someone their baby is ugly. <laughs> I know of a pastor who did this mystery shopper thing with his church. He would pay non-Christians to come in and rate their experiences. He would then build a team off of those evaluations. That's what church growth experts tell you to do. I want you to know, it is impossible for me to care any less about what mystery shoppers think of our church as they walk through. I only care what Jesus thinks of our church when he walks through. He knows the heart. He walks between the lampstands. Here's the basis of evaluation. Number one, his opinion is the only one that matters. Number two, it's possible to work hard but achieve nothing. We did not read a review from an angry person today. This was a review from the resurrected Christ. It's a mixed review. Jesus says nine positive things and one negative thing. But the one negative thing is no small detail. Jesus administered a stinging evaluation. It would have been better for someone to tell them their baby was ugly. Every congregation must stand individually accountable to God, including Faith Family Church. Now, I just want to pause my applications for a moment and speak directly to some of you. Non-Christians, I want you to feel loved here. I want you to feel encouraged here. But we do not design anything here based on what you would like. We don't select songs that we think would attract you. We don't do the bait and switch where we talk about something super practical to bait you in and then slip the gospel on you. We are not here to impress you or receive a good evaluation from you. In fact, if we're doing what we're supposed to do, this isn't going to be appealing to you at all. Genuine, heartfelt, authentic worship is not appealing to non-Christians. Now, I deeply want you to become a Christian. I deeply want you to experience the love of Christ, to know what it means to have your sins forgiven. Let me ask you a question, non-Christian. Is there something in you that wants to know more? Have you felt the stinging evaluation and you're seeing your sin for the first time? That's not natural. Other non-Christians aren't going through that. 
See, that's Jesus saying, come. Come and be satisfied. Application number two. FFC, we need to be, we need to continue to be vigilant about doctrine. We don't give up on doctrinal depth for the sake of love. I get a little annoyed how some pastors preach this text. They preach it like the church at Ephesus was a fundamentalist church. Always angry, always on a heresy hunt, always wanting to divide, calling heresy what isn't heresy. Ephesus was not a fundamentalist church. They nailed heresy and they were commended for it. Jesus said, keep doing what you're doing doctrinally. Don't change that at all. Don't weaken that emphasis one bit. The answer is not to care less about doctrine. The command was not to stop calling out false teachers. When, when pastors preach this like it's deep doctrine or deep love, that's wrong. It's not one or the other. Nor is it less of one and more of the other. Nor do you need a balance between doctrine and love. Oh, you're, you're, just, you're heavy on doctrine. You need balance. Close your mouth before you further reveal how biblically clueless you are. Balance is a concept from Eastern mysticism. A little less doctrine and a little more love. No, it's this. Same doctrine, just more love. Keep your informed mind and regain an inflamed heart. This evaluation is not saying stop being a heady church. It's saying be a heady church and also a hearty church at the same time. Jesus says, I will settle for nothing less than your head and your heart. Application number three. FFC. We need to renew our love for the Lord. Church, we can be doctrinally on point and Jesus still shut us down. Remove our candlestick. But we're singing the right songs. We're preaching expository sermons. <laughs> Put yourself in the church pews of Ephesus when they first hear this letter read to them. Uh, picture their faces. I mean, they had to be thinking at the beginning when the letter first started. They had to be thinking, yes, Jesus thinks we're working hard. Yes, Jesus sees we labor in doctrine and call out false teachers. Yes, Jesus sees we practice church discipline. Everyone around here hates that, but he loves it. He knows we have the right behavior and the right belief. Yes! I wish I could have seen their faces when they heard these words. But I have this against you. You abandoned your first love. You need more than right behavior and right belief. You need the right heart. When did Jesus become more of a concept to you than a person? You're theologically thick, but thin on love. Good at keeping the world out of the church, but bad at showing the world the love of Christ. There is a danger of theologically astute churches becoming nothing more 
than frozen chosen. Your doctrine can be very close to Christ while your heart is very far away from Christ. You can lose your love for Jesus without ever saying, I don't love you anymore. God is not honored by joyless obedience that just plods along. It's possible to be persevering for orthodoxy and apathetic toward God. It's possible to have a lofty reputation outside the church without having loving relationships inside the church. The church at Ephesus will tell you a great past is no guarantee of a great future. Application number four. And I want you to hear this. FFC, you model this better than any church I've ever been a part of. You fight for doctrinal purity and for the souls of men and women. You stand at the top of the cliff saying, stop, stop, danger, don't go, don't do that, stop. And you're the first to meet the fallen one at the bottom with bandages and gospel balm. Your love for one another goes as deep as your doctrine. And it's a real pleasure to pastor you. Let's stand and pray. Father, have mercy on our cold, mechanical hearts. We remember, we repent, and we promise to resume. Make us a heady church and a hearty church until you come back and make us a perfect church. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.